Welcome to Corporate Wayfinding, Conversations in Transformation, with Dr. J.P. Gideon. Hey everyone, it's J.P. Gideon and welcome to another episode of Corporate Wayfinding. This is a special podcast series because it's dedicated to discussing complexities and challenges involved in corporate and cultural transformations in today's incredibly bustling and swirling and uncertain business world. So that means that in every episode of this podcast series, I will feature nationally and internationally renowned leaders and ask them to share insights about the current disruptive state of the marketplace and what they've learned through COVID and adapting for the future, as well as insights into constructive and permanent transformation and maybe a bit of educated fortune telling where we try to understand and predict what the future will look like and how we can best be ready for it. Today, it is truly my honor and pleasure to welcome my special guest, Mike College, president of Ipsos Public Affairs, Canada's premier public affairs agency. Mike joined Ipsos in 1997 after more than 12 years of working in both social and economic portfolios for the government of Canada. That means that his background includes all facets of public and private sector communications, as well as government policy and program development. He's examined issues that range from encouraging people to donate blood to positioning the government of Canada's annual budget, to helping businesses understand the impact of social change on their operations and their reputation. Today, Mike works with both public sector and private sector clients. So as the line between citizens and consumers' expectations of companies and governments increasingly blurs, Mike helps clients discover and understand the social truths that allow them to better define their goals, their actions, and their purpose in the context of the public and what it means to them. Today at Ipsos, Mike oversees a cross-country team of researchers and consultants who help their clients better understand the world around them. Whether it's through surveys, consultations, or social listening, the Public Affairs Group provides clients with the evidence, the insight, and the advice that they need to move their organizations forward. Now, if at any point you'd like to get in contact with me personally, it would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through a contact form on my website, which is drjpgideon.com. That's D-R-J-P-G-E-D-E-O-N.com. Enjoy the conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you. I, I am so excited to hear about what Ipsos has been working on and all the insights you have to bring to us today. Thank you very much for having me. So you know what, maybe, maybe we could start first by talking a little bit about Ipsos. Uh, I hear about them all the time on the news, usually around political polls, but I know you guys do so much more than that. So maybe you could just fill us in so we have a grand idea of what you do, and then we can talk about some of the stuff you're seeing. Sounds, sounds good, yeah. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, uh, JP, that what you, most people hear about is this during elections or the run-up to elections and where people are on vote or approval for governments. And, and, and that's what gets the, the bulk of the press. Uh, but that's a very, very, very small part of what we actually do. The, the vast majority of our business is helping other businesses um, either develop products, market those products, uh, improve their customer service, understand their clientele, or in the case of the work I do, understand Canadian citizens and how they they see the world, their values, how they how they view a lot of the issues, emerging issues on the social side or economic side, sort of that broader issue. Because you can imagine, 
with, with COVID, uh, that has become something of, of, of heavy interest to, to all of our clients, in the public sector or private sector. Yeah, I think you're, you're right in the middle of the storm. So when it comes to things like public opinion, public sentiment, what are you guys, you know, on a broad basis, I guess, and we can really dig in as we go, are there grand trends that you guys are seeing that are starting to arise now that are worth noting? I think it's worth looking back to how we started, if you want to talk about COVID specifically, back to where we went into COVID. Um, We went in, um, but I would say a fairly low level of resilience in terms of public sentiment. Um, Canadians were having challenges with affordability, uh, felt that the macroeconomic numbers, if you go back to late 2018, mid-2019, where we had record low unemployment, (laughs) great profit numbers, the economy on a roll, and yeah. People were saying to us, I'm not feeling that around my kitchen table. I am actually struggling. I don't have one of those good jobs. There are many jobs, but they're not very good jobs. They don't have uh, support. They certainly don't have pensions. So people were telling us prior to COVID that they doubted the direction of the country. They had concerns around, around economic issues, personal economic issues. So yeah. that's how we went into COVID. And then you go into COVID and the world changes considerably and, and very quickly. And, and, and everything we thought we knew about public opinion, uh, I've been doing this for about 30 years now, uh, sort of went out the window on uh, <laughs> uh, early March when we, well, mid-February to early March, we went into uh, sort of the shutdown. Um, because this is an issue that if you think about it, right, I mean, there have been 9-11 and there have been other economic uh, depressions and recessions, but never has something hit an entire uh, population around the world at the same time. Well, not exactly at the same time, but, you know, over the course and and had the same impact and had the same kind of economic shutdown. So we really are all into this together. And and I don't know that we'll know the outcomes for two, three, four, five years. Yeah, but, you know, the the interesting thing about COVID and the economic side of it anyway, uh, just from that perspective, is unlike other financial downturns that hit us, you know, 2008 and, you know, way back. And um, this one really isn't driven by an economic or financial problem that arose. This comes from a whole different world, like a whole health crisis that is crashing a whole other system. Do we know how to deal with that? Well, and that's, and then, so we, and that's the concern the public have, right? Is Mm -hmm. they don't think we know how to deal with it just yet. Right. I mean, the, the, the on again, off again sort of starts, and 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 Canada is better than 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 I'll say some other countries in terms of we've actually been willing to listen to the science. If there's a if there's a bright note out of this for Canadians, and I think for the for Canadian policy folks, is that Canadians have said we'll accept the science, we'll accept the best practices. So we didn't have a big issue when it was no masks. Then we'd have an issue really when it was masks. People went, okay, I'm happy to move into wearing a mask because it seems like that's where the science goes, and we seem to accept that that's going to evolve over time, that this is new and we're going to learn as we go. Um, but by far, even though we know this is caused by a health concern, we're more concerned about economic issues. In fact, we're more concerned about mental health issues and we've had more mental health struggles than we have physical health struggles from COVID, uh, if you look at the sort of the, the real numbers, right? And that was mental health concerns around uncertainty, <laughs> jobs, the economy, my kids going to school, you know, those kind of things and, and protecting others. Um, and then for Canadians, I think it's around four in 10 to say they've known someone who lost their job or some of their families been affected their employment, either hours or job. Um, about eight and 10 say we're in for a worldwide recession still. About six and 10 say it's hurting the Canadian economy. 
Um, and, and so you've really seen this health issue hit home from an economic perspective. And, and you're right, it's, not, it's unlike others, right, where we could, if we solve the health crisis, turn the taps back on. Right, right. And, and, and that's, that's been sort of on the back of my mind around this public sentiment about our economy and opening our markets and opening our schools in that unlike other financial downturns where certainly government and industry have to work together to try to shore it up and move it, in this case, many businesses can't willingly open their doors necessarily. And so yes. that puts a whole other wrinkle in this entire thing that creates a level of uncertainty that I guess you must be observing some kind of social effects that are starting to make themselves known as a result of these things. We just don't know. And, and I think um, just like stock markets, uh, people tend to really dislike uncertainty. We want to be able to plan. We want to know that uh, the, the day after Labor Day, the kids go back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want short-term, mid-term, long-term plans. You know, uh, we think Canadians probably more so than some other nations. And we just can't do that right now. Um, you know, you know, talk to people who are putting their kids back to school and they're saying um, yes or no, and, and then we'll see. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a very challenging time. The same with businesses, right? They don't know what levels they come back. Um, most companies and, and most economies are built on a model of continuous growth. Um, right. And we may be in an extended period where that's not feasible. Um, you know, you just can't turn a restaurant that, say, that sat 200 people indoors in Winnipeg um, into a, a restaurant that sits 200 people outdoors in Winnipeg in February. Um, so that uncertainty around the economic models, um, and I, you know, restaurants is just one area, um, really is driving a lot of angst for, for small business owners uh, and, and the Canadian population alike. So I guess, you know, what I'm hearing is that there seems to be two lines. And while you're talking, my, my mind is turning towards this whole notion of, of social cohesion in, in Canada. There seems to be one line where we are really united, you know, this whole science orientation, we learn as we go, we take care of each other, um, you know, we're trying to band together. But then there's this other line that seems to be, you know, kids are going to school, so will we send them? Some people say yes, some people say no. Uh, You know, different habits on how we're behaving, some being more protectionist than others because maybe they have vulnerable people, etc., so there seems to be a little bit of a, a, a paradoxical or contradictory thing where one line is really cohesive, the other line is maybe polarizing. Are you guys seeing any movement on social cohesion that is of particular note? Well, so I'll, I'll go back to pre-COVID again. Um, right. We'd seen social cohesion on its way down. Um, and those things that flow from it, lower vote to lower participation in volunteer activities, et cetera, as well, but I think it was down to around four in 10 Canadians said they felt they shared the same values, opinions, things that were important to them as other people in their community or other Canadians. Um, and that had been been down over the, the past couple of years. What COVID did initially was gave us both, a, um, a gave us all a common enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we rallied together. And, and we did say, uh, we feel we need to attack this and do it together. And they're there really was a coming together of Canadians around the initial response. Right. Um, government approval ratings were higher than, than, than they have ever been. Uh, across mm-hmm. the board, federal, provincial, municipal, we were going to tackle this together. But we've already seen that starting to come back down. We've seen about a 10, 15 point drop, not in approval ratings, but in sort of that come togetherness of, of people. 
as COVID is unfolding. What COVID has done is really laid bare some of the, for lack of better terms, the gaps we had in society. Um, older people are much more confident going forward than younger people because they have pensions, because their 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 income is set, because they have better jobs, because they have houses. Uh, younger people are thrown into that uncertainty we talked about earlier. Thrown into complete disarray. Um, same with rich and poor. Uh, same with some of the regions. So, uh, you know, while we talk a lot in the U.S. about the polarization around of their their uh, social issues and politics around party lines or around race lines. In Canada, it's almost more of a splintering. Um, you know, we don't have the polarization, but we certainly don't have a uh, uniform view that we're all in this together. That's kind of interesting. And is that is that regionally driven, or are you seeing the same kind of splintering clear across the country? It, it, there are some regions that are it's driven. The regions, obviously, in, in, in Alberta and the prairies, um, where the economy's been hit harder, it's it's a little bit different but you see the same thing everywhere right you see young people in ontario versus older people in ontario with the same diff very different views of how they're going to come out of covid um what they can afford to do i mean you know at the same time when we see um half say they're worried about losing their job mm -hmm. we see 32 percent saying now's a really good time to invest and take advantage of the lower stock market right so <laughs> you see that gap where you know half are saying i'm, I'm worried i'm not gonna be able to pay my rent and then about a third, largely older, largely better in, better income or more wealth, even if they're not income, if they're retired, saying now's a good time to get into the market and take advantage of, of, uh, of stocks that I think are going to boom, right? I can actually make money off of the, the COVID downturn. So, you, you know, when you have those two polarized views just on the economic things, you can really see how people view um, the current situation very differently depending on where you're from. In listening to Mike's account about how COVID may have splintered Canadian society into various opposing groups, I became concerned about the degree and extent to which such polarization could go. I asked Mike whether he felt that Canadians were at risk of experiencing American-style polarization. I don't know if it becomes an American style, but I do think it's a concern. I think social cohesion is probably one of, if not the, the bigger issues on the horizon that we have to tackle and understand. Um, it is what it is what allows governments to have legitimacy. If we don't feel we're working together, um, then we get into you know nationalism, nativism, however you want to want to call it. But but that notion, and, and maybe we get into a communityism, right? Where um, you know I'm from Oshawa, I don't really care what happens in Mississauga, right? Um, that kind of thing, right? And we heard that in you know around discussions in. Um, 2018 2017 around the auto industry when when you know different detectors were being heard people in neighboring communities said well they were often relying on that 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 sector for a long time and they should have learned better right it's not my job to look after that community right um which we've never really heard in canada right? I mean, there's always been an, an urban rural split uh, which has gotten less as we've become more and more urban and more and more suburban right, right? that's right. sort of drowning out the rural voices um but now you know different communities will, will look after themselves actually and that's very worrisome if you think about uh um you know uh, any country that that has you know national desire so if you want to have a national approach to them and it, let's say climate change <laughs> yeah. right uh it gets harder if you don't feel like you're all rowing together and i think you're you know you don't you know i could we don't have that in you know out, out, all you have to look at is alberta's views on climate change and quebec's views on climate change and what needs to be done you see very little middle ground right now and so that social cohesion bringing that together and finding middle ground is key so what was driving do you think this separation or potential polarization pre-covid 
I, I think the uneven economy. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think we have, um, and, and by economy, I, I don't mean necessarily regional. I, I think that notion I talked about early on about sort of affordability around the kitchen table, right? I mean, some people have done better. Some people have, have struggled. 2000, we had a long, strong economic run into 2008, 2009, went 10, 12 years. Um, and people came out of that saying, you know, but things have been great. And I remember talking to people in folks groups at that time, and they were like, this is going to be a blip. We're going to get back to 3 4% growth because that's what we've done. We're a good country. You know, we're strong. We have natural resources. We've adopted technology. Like, we're, we're good. <laughs> uh, and then that never materialized, really. And so what we saw from sort of 2010 to 2016, 2017 um, was no real gain in sort of views on, I mean, it blips up and down, but no real gain in views on job satisfaction or confidence in your job, no real gain in views on the economy and their economic prospects. We asked the question, I'm going to say 2019, sort of 10 years forward, do you think your economic prospects, your personal economic prospects are going to be better, worse, or the same? And two thirds said worse or the same. So you think about that desire for growth, you know, and I remember um, presenting it in downtown Toronto um, and I, you know, everybody said that doesn't seem right because it's not, that is not the feeling in downtown Toronto or downtown Ottawa, I'll pick Ontario, where there has been growth and economic opportunities, but go to St. Thomas, go to Peterborough, go to Smith Falls, right? Go to those places and, and, yeah. and, and same in 10 years is really good for some people, right? They're not looking at economic growth. They're not seeing those opportunities. So is there is there an urbanization that has been happening that you think that COVID is going to disrupt? The reason I'm asking is, you know, now that COVID is hit and everyone's sort of gone home and we're all working from home, it's really hard to, after six months or eight months or whatever number of months of working from home to now say to people, well, we need to force you to come back to the office. That's yeah. very not likely to happen. And so suddenly your immediate geographical location does not necessarily matter to where you're employed if everything is more remotely done. So I'm, I'm getting a sense that there's an increased mobility happening where people are thinking of moving out, um, moving away, going to places they've always wanted to go. And I guess that will fundamentally affect what was urbanization earlier before COVID. For sure. And, 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 and again, it, a lot depends, right? It all depends on what government uh, policies get put in place to to facilitate this and what companies do a lot depends on how fast we find a vaccine or a reasonable treatment. Um, you know, but right now uh, the public are saying those who've started to work from home who can work from home are saying, you know what, I, I like it better. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's some who don't, right. But, but there's enough who do and the numbers don't have to be that in, in percentage terms that big. You know, if you pick uh, some, you know, a small town of 25,000, 2,500 people move into that town from Toronto and let's say it's outside of Toronto. Uh, that's a 10% <laughs> yeah. uh, growth. And those will be better jobs than likely were in that town before. So there'll be economic input. There'll be housing input. There'll be people who want to go to post-COVID restaurants. It can be quite a lift for some small towns. So I suspect, and you go back to the social cohesion and the community issue, um, if I were a small community leader <laughs> in and around Toronto or Ottawa or Calgary, um, I'd be um, making it very clear that this is a good place for you to come and live. 
Mm -hmm. um, we have a decent commute into downtown Toronto. We have decent Wi-Fi and broadband. We have some cultural activities. And you're not going to feel that disassociated from the big city if you come live in, let's say, London, Ontario. In considering Mike's account of the splintering being experienced by Canadian society, as well as the economic pressures being felt at Canadian kitchen tables, my mind turned to the retail sector. I asked Mike if he and his organization have been seeing a rising patterns in that sector. Yeah, and it, it varies very much by sector, obviously. I mean, it, um, you know, some sectors are booming and some sectors are down. If you're in, if you're like in the, the restaurant. Like the toilet paper boom at the beginning of this <laughs> yeah, whole thing. Yeah, which made no sense at all. <laughs> uh, but, but a lot of like, things that people actually act on are um, <laughs> not necessarily driven by um, logic or, or right. facts. They're driven sure. by emotion, right? Um, and, and we don't know. It's 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 funny as a as a company, even planning our our um, our own view of the world. You know, we look at their sort of at, at at the basic. There are three or four different phases that you could go through. And our our global CEO says there's only three phases: there's before, during, and after. Um, <laughs> and, and 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 before was before, and during is is marred with uncertainty and uh, trying to get through the next six months and six month integrals. And when we'll know when we hit after because we'll have a vaccine or we'll have a treatment mm -hmm. um, or we'll have adjusted to a, a, a level of certainty. Like this is the new world. The new world does not include um, outdoor festivals of 25,000. Every outdoor festival right. is 2,500 spread and it costs a lot more. Um, but you can see all kinds of implications if you start to cast forward and, and we don't know where these go, right? Maybe restaurants are smaller. And it may have the same size, but the, the, the number of people in every restaurant is smaller. Or maybe you pay a premium to go to a patio that has fewer people, you know. So maybe those kind of things happen on the restaurant side. Maybe the one thing that we are seeing is a huge acceleration in, um, in um, e-commerce, right? So e-commerce is up, uh, direct-to-consumer home delivery is up. And I don't know that those things roll back, right? And you can bet that, you know... Um, the Amazons of the world and those who are, who are taking advantage of those things are going to do everything they can to not have them roll back, right? They're going to say, we've made these gains, we want to continue. Um, so that'll change foot traffic, right? I mean, if, you know, you find that it's easier to order your toilet paper um, and have it delivered to your home as opposed to go out, then it'll change foot traffic. So let's link this back to what we were talking about earlier, though. Because, you know, the, the, I think what really gets interesting is when we start linking various lines together. A decrease in foot traffic is probably being driven now because everything's moving online. I totally get it. But is there not a social cohesion piece around having to go to the mall and seeing other people mm -hmm. and connecting community-wise? So is one sort of driving the other in, in, in a negative direction? Are, are we potentially looking at something like that? For sure. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the heart of every community, uh, if you go back 100 years with the marketplace, Right. right. You went into trade, you went into exchange goods or you went into buy goods, depending on which, where you were. Right. And that's where you, you ended up running into people. That's where you cross paths with people you don't necessarily know. That's where you hold the door for strangers. That's where you, you know, you bump into friends and those kind of things. You take that away. Um, and it had already started. Right. I mean, I think we'd seen that right in the move to the suburbs and some of those things. And I, I think that's why, um, I don't know if you've talked to any, um, any city planners, right? I know some of the city planners I talked to said, you know, we're creating um, festival spaces and downtown open air spaces, um, not so much as a, as a, as a money-making thing for the city, but as a place for people to meet and congregate because 
there were fewer and fewer of those, right? You know, you start to take away the foot traffic and you end up with a smaller and smaller bubble. I'm of the view that they're increasingly we're in two communities. We have a community of affinity, those people that we're connected to online um, mm-hmm. or through other means that we really sort of either experientially or spiritually, uh, I mean, in the broadest sense, connect with, right? There are friends from university that we, you know, when they make you live in Thailand or Texas or wherever, right? but because of technology, you don't ever feel disconnected from them. So you have that group of that, that community of affinity that you choose to be part of, right? Right. And you have a community of proximity, and that community of proximity can be people you live close to or people you worked in close proximity to, right? So as we break down the community of proximity further and further, we make our communities smaller. And the community of affinity, you get everything you need from the community of affinity in terms of being able to talk to people. Right? And you look at, um, you know, online gamers, right? So I don't know um, if you ever, ever talked to a largely predominantly male uh, 20 to, to 35 year old who's an online gamer and you ask them who they game with. Well, I game with a couple guys from Sweden and a guy from Texas. I've never met them in person, but I've known them for 15 years because um, we play the similar, we play a similar style of game, et cetera, et cetera. So they have these communities that they build through gaming. Other people do it through, and they go to university and they meet people. Other people, it's through work colleagues that they've, gathered up and collected along the way, but you maintain that. It's interesting because, you know, psychologists would say that being over-invested in a community of, of affinity will have some mental health potential implications at a world of yours or mine, for that matter, that is contracting rather than expanding, and that when a crisis hits, the contracted world will not offer the kind of support necessary um, because a community of affinity that is all online is easy to jump in and out of. Whereas a mm-hmm. community of proximity kind of has to work together because my neighbor yep. is right there and we got to get the stuff done. Since you mentioned mental health before, is this part of what you guys are seeing? Is this figuring into it? I, I think so. And I, and I think we do see that um, people who are on in other studies, we've seen people who are on social media quite a bit have, have, more mental health struggles or they get more stuck in the social, you get stuck in your bubble. Right. And it's probably right. not as supportive. Um, and, and everybody's community of affinity is going to be different. Some are going to be stronger, right? If you're, if you're my age and you're 57 and some of the people you connect with, you have known for 30 years, you can probably reach out to them when you're struggling. Right. If you're 22 and you've only known them for two years, they're probably not the same level of support. Right. So that's, so I think you see it more amongst, um, amongst younger people who have less of a balance between the two, right? So, it, I mean, the other issue is if you're, you know, <laughs> we organize ourselves around the community of proximity. Our voting, we vote based on region. <laughs> we deliver services based on region in terms of government. Um, we look at economic growth based on region. Now, mobility may change that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, what we talked about earlier, people working from home. But right now, um, you know, we divide the world geographically, um, you know, from, from, from nations and countries all the way down to communities and postal code areas uh, or zip codes in the U.S. And we try to function that way. And if people start increasingly to think about it in a, about the world in broader terms, mm-hmm. um, there are some, some big implications longer term in how we keep this thing knit together. So is COVID promoting a new kind of globalization or is it actually promoting a contraction? Mm-hmm. I think the jury's out still. I don't know that we'll know for a little while. I mean, it could go one of two ways, right? I mean, if we move 
faster than people expect and the economy returns faster and science triumphs, we could see um, a, a rejuvenation and sort of this global togetherness and we need to work, you know, this society collectivity can challenge things. If it drags on and drags on, uh, you could see a protectionist sentiment coming up. And I mean that, you know, we already see some trade issues popping mm-hmm. up since COVID and, and leaders matter too. Right. I think the difference is if you look at Canada and the U.S., um, leadership, the tone, openness, transparency um, really makes a big difference in how the public responds. In considering the various and pervasive effects that the pandemic has had on industry in Canada and considering Ipsos's central role as an analytics company for various sectors, I asked Mike if he has observed a change or modulation in the tone of private sector companies as they investigate what the future might be holding for them. Um, Yeah, I I think there's more concern about social issues. I mean, I think there's more concern about um, the the broader issues that we're discussing right now, because I think there's, you know, some of the gaps in society, rich, poor, urban, rural, age, I won't say papered over, but we're harder to see because things were turning along. The short-term things look pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been laid bare. And if you look at a country like Canada, um, we really need immigration to grow. Um, I think it's it's a pretty, yeah, I, someone may argue with me, but, you know, um, our economic growth with our fertility down, um, aging society, our economic growth is really, really dependent on immigration. Um, there are signs that we're going to see less support for immigration. Um, now, right. whether that's a, a short-term blip around COVID or a long-term sort of pause, we'll see. Um, we're going to get fewer immigrants this year because we have closed the doors and the process is that just the reality of, the, of yeah. COVID. Um, but if we come out of this in three or four or five years and we've lost even 10, 15% of public support on, on the notion of increased immigration, that will be an issue for all of our business clients, right? It won't be an issue in terms of um, the products and services necessarily that they develop, but the number of people they have to sell to, the number of people they have that can come work for them, uh, that then it'll be very core to their business to understand. So those kinds of social issues are becoming a bigger concern for, for private sector corporations. So another one of my guests, uh, Trevin Stratton from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, he's our chief economist. He and I had a bit of a chat about immigration too. And he basically laid economic rebound and health at the feet of immigration and said that in a country like ours, we must uh, invest in that and know that it is important. And I asked him an unfair question because he didn't have the numbers, but maybe you guys do. Do you believe that the Canadian populace in general understands the great impact immigration has on our entire quality of life and would potentially vote in its favor in times where the question is being posed? Um, I don't, yeah, I think a plurality does. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know that a majority does. But you're bundling a number of things in together, right? Uh, We've seen it, um, we've seen people say, um, during COVID, I, we should take in fewer refugees, right? That we should start to rule some of those some of those things back, and it's a bit of a knee jerk reaction to the economy and a number of things. Um, concerned about where the source of for some people, you know, there is a pocket out there that think we should close the doors and we shouldn't have immigration. And then there are, you know, the great thing about Canada is is we've had such a strong 
multicultural support. And that's, you know, evident. We brought so many people in, newcomers into the country, um, but most of them continue to support it, right? So I don't, I think Canada's better off than many other countries in terms of that. We have, um, and it has largely been a success. You know, there are pockets in Europe where people say, look, this community or that community has not been, a, has not been successful because we haven't integrated immigrants very well. I think in the long run, yes. Will we have some blips on the road? Will we have some problems getting there? Probably. And I also think that um, the advantage we have in Canada is politically, um, you know, our spectrum from left to right isn't that great uh, on immigration, right? The, the right of Canada supports immigration. The left in Canada, the far, the far right and the far left in Canada both support immigration. Mm-hmm. They both think we should, we need to bring in more. Now, they vary in some of the controls. They vary in um, some of the skills and some of the, you know, some of the, the key drivers, but they don't vary right now in terms of the sheer numbers that they think we should bring into the country. Um, so I think that that will be the uh, the reason we we succeed. You know, this this might seem like a, a a strange way of framing it, but one of my thoughts is that a disruption is a disruption only if it's short lived. If it's long lived, and we're currently talking about this kind of a state that we're living in for twelve months, maybe fifteen, maybe eighteen. You know, it's all dependent on when this vaccine comes in. That's long term. And the issue about long-term disruptions is that it really does tend to concretize habits, that after doing something for so long, I'm now so accustomed to doing it that way. When we're talking about immigration, we're talking about an approach to letting people into the country that was really a legacy approach. And now after a year or a year and a half of shutting borders and nobody traveling anywhere, I wonder if that's going to change our mindset, if it's just going to seem foreign what used to not be foreign at all. It, it, it may be that we see something that we haven't seen in the past, and that are large campaigns promoting the benefits of immigration. We haven't had to do those in Canada because we've largely assumed that people believe that it's the case. And, and so we've communicated awareness and we've communicated sort of levels and we've communicated the things we do to protect Canadians in order to keep support for immigration, right? Mm-hmm. Those things have been communicated. But I think we could easily see, and, any, and I, right now, if you look at sort of where the parties are, um, you could see any of those parties saying it's such an important thing that if public opinion started to wane, um, they would you know, literally take to, the, take to Twitter, take to social media, take to the televisions and say, here's why we're going to push for more immigration. Here's why we need it. And I, and I think Canadians could be brought back. So what are you guys observing in your metrics on the political side of things? Well, right now, um, you know, it, you know, the approval rating for every government is, is still fairly high, right? People are very happy with um, income supports that have come from all levels of government, the steps that have been taken um, on the health side to, to uh, reduce the number of cases. And that's largely because both of those have worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a, we plummeted in terms of people's worries or concerns about job confidence went way down. It's come back up. Uh, it's about, it's not where it was pre COVID, but it's up about 20 points from where it was at the bottom of COVID. Um, and we've seen case, the number of cases of COVID cases around the country, relatively control their flare ups. And we're seeing actually, I think, um, pretty good health practices. Um, so people are confident as long as those things happen. So the question becomes, um, with winter coming <laughs> back right. to school before that, uh, will we see cases go up and people get antsy and concerned? Will the, and I suspect we're going to see it. I mean, I think it's, um, 
I want to say Italy and Spain just closed all the bars and restaurants again. Um, that on again, off again, economic social activity, right? So you you can you know <laughs> you, you know you can the, the downtown can be open up and we can go out on Friday night, but the next Friday night, no, we can't, right? And we're shut down for two weeks. So how will that's that weigh on people? Incredibly disruptive for industry, though. Yep, but I, I but I but that's in that so that's where confidence will start to wane, right? Will we see people hold on? When those are on again, off again, when we see the cases go. And then the other one is on the income supports. Right now, everything that's being done, the wage subsidy, the the um, emergency to benefit the CERB, um, largely are a bridge from stopping the economy. Because as you noted before, this isn't a recession driven by an economic recession. It was a stop, right. of a, a legislative stop, basically. We're trying to bridge from the stop to the start. Right now we've restarted a little bit, but the ground hasn't come back up to the bridge yet. And so, so what happens when the, the bridge stops, right? And can we, or do we keep the bridge going forever? Do we run deficits to the point where we keep some form of a bridge in through the spring next year um, or yeah. fall, the, fall, the following fall, right? As we get it right now, you, that's why you're seeing um, a lot of people start to talk about, uh, about basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and sort of the need for that. And could it be something that we knew that, that pushes us into that space? So how are corporations dealing with the potential on-again, off-again situation coming up? I mean, this puts them in a bit of a holding pattern where even they don't know what's going to happen. Or do you find that they're asking for metrics that are trying to get them proactive where they're going to make decisions? Well, I, I, and I don't work on that side in terms of the, the, some of the work that's done, but I know some, some of my colleagues are looking at, you know, are people stockpiling? right? So they can understand better demand, right? We talked about toilet paper at the beginning, but, you know, so we do a study on, uh, my colleagues do, that's, a, that's basically a pantry study for the food sector. Mm-hmm. But what do you have? What have you stocked? What do you have? So the, the food sector can understand, is someone sitting at home with 12 boxes of, of uh, cereal in, in, in preparation? Or are they, you know, working down their, their, their stockpiles and working back into some sort of, sort of uh, pre-COVID pattern again? A major area for concern is the Canadian travel industry. A close colleague of mine at a very senior level in the aviation industry has been very concerned about the dead stop in the activity in the industry, as well as its viability and survivability. I asked Mike what patterns Ipsos is observing in the travel industry and what effect those patterns might have at affecting the Canadian economy in the years to come. What we see on the travel in particular is is, um, the further you travel, the more concerned you are, the further you would think about traveling, right? Obviously, international travel. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. There's the lack of control. Um, you know, how many different airports do I need to go through or how many different, you know, stations do I need to go through? Uh, so the lack of your own personal control. Um, and then one of the big ones is, and everybody supports it, but you can see why it's a drag. It's if I go to a country and I have to do 14 days of quarantine, and I have to come back and do 14 days of quarantine. So I have two little kids, two little kids. Suppose I want to go to uh, Mexico in February, get away from uh, work and the cold and my children for two weeks, uh, for a week, say. I never get two weeks. Um, <laughs> I, I have to come back in quarantine for two weeks before right. I can see my kids. So suddenly my one-week vacation is three weeks of not seeing my kids. So, you know, so for, you know, for, for most people, they're going, well, it's just not going to happen. So, so that's a hurdle. Um, until such time as we get over that hurdle, you can see where there's going to be a drag. So I think they're going to have to focus on sort of short haul. Can we get people to to visit the rest of the country? Can we, you know, encourage that kind of thing to, and scale appropriately? So are we looking at an increased boom in uh, domestic 
tourism, I guess? Uh, I haven't seen stats that show that, but but okay. you can certainly see where people's uh, focus is in that. I mean, and, and you know, there's lots of news stories about, um, you know, the, the rush to cottage country and people buying more cottages and the sales mm-hmm. of boats and RVs have gone up and the sales of trampolines. And, you know, a lot of people are, are staying at home, right? And saying... Yes. I'm going to, you know, I, I, you know, I'm going to put an above ground pool in the backyard because I don't know how long this is going to last. You know, if it's if it's three years, I, um, and I'm not going to be able to travel, um, I may as well have a, a place for the kids to play. Yeah, well, we're 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 seeing that quite a bit where uh, people we know who own rental properties in cottage country found themselves overrun with potential renters this year, uh, as opposed to what we normally see. So I'm I'm presuming that's going to continue. I'm also hearing a lot of people say that even when the world returns to some degree of openness, they kind of want to stay in the country to try to promote the economic growth here so that we can make sure we're on our feet. Yeah. And there has been a, a you know, I, I forget the numbers now, but a, a large majority who say, I'm going to focus on local economics. Yeah, right, so I understand how do we do that? that without getting overly protectionistic and sort of. Well, that's and that, exactly the, the whole catch twenty two, right? Is um, is um, and, and people will say it, buying local, and buying Canadian, and making sure we shore up the Canadian domestic economy. But at the same time, if you have severe economic hardships for at least you know that lower income portion of the population. Uh, value and cost is going to drive things. So they, they, that tips the advantage to large corporations that have economies of scale that can do direct-to-consumer, that can do online, and can deliver your toilet paper at I don't know half the price of the, the local store. Right. Um, or you know, so so you can see where people say it and then don't act it. And we've seen this for a long time in the environmental space, where people have said, "I'm very concerned about the environment and I want to do something about it, but I don't want to spend any more money on it." I don't, I don't want to um, have my gas price go up in order to have a, a carbon tax. I don't want to have um, to pay more. So the people who have championed things like uh, hybrid cars have largely been people who are wealthy already. So those will change because the mark, because the services and offers will change and some of that, you know, will come down in price. Uh, but you have this real tension between buy local and what can you afford, right? Um, so there'll right. be niche products that make it. Um, you know, um, I was listening to a story about um, the aluminum tariffs right now and what mm-hmm. it's going to do to uh, to craft beers, right? <laughs> the right. big guys, it's not a big deal, uh, one or two cents onto a can, right? They can probably in their in their volume can you know work that out. But if you're a small craft beer manufacturer and you're working in the thousands of cans or uh, versus the millions of cans, um, adding three to five cents a can may price you out of the market for some people. Let me take that to the next step since we're talking about, you know, large scale things like potential aluminum tariffs and affordability and and economic sustainability. Do you guys have any sense on people's attitudes or government's attitudes or even corporations concern with the Canadian economy that is so based on natural resources and how that has been a huge boon for us in the past and what that looks like in the future? And potentially what's going on with the whole climate change conversation? Because as we deglobalize and clamp down, it's almost like climate change has been taken off the table for a little bit of time now as we deal with more pressing issues. Yeah, it, well, I'll start at the back end. So, so climate change hasn't really been taken off the table. I would say it's um, declined in urgency. It's right. still there. It's going to come back. It's still 
very core, particularly to uh, a younger population. What it has done been is pushed off of the top of the charts for better description yeah. by COVID, by health concerns, by my job, et cetera. So it will slow down and you'll, you'll see less, less of a desire for sort of let's fix some big issues. Right. And, and the other thing with climate change is, and people don't often see this is that, but you know, single use plastics, and waste in general aren't that far behind in an overall environmental movement. So we get it. Climate change gets a lot of the coverage that global warming, but single use plastics is for, for many people just as big an issue. So there is an overall environmental movement um, mm-hmm. that's going to move forward. And what's, what's happening with that is um, increasingly it's become a cost of entry for businesses. It's right. not a, something that you get a benefit for doing. It's almost like, ethics it's almost and it's not there yet but sort of that religious status right either you're with me or you're not right and if i look at you and i don't think your packaging is right i just won't buy it um so i won't pay more for it but i will punish you by not buying it and so even on even in the energy sector um i I think people will uh, people and their preferences will drive it more than sort of government legislation as alternatives become available that are similarly priced right as technology catches up and whether that's solar or wind or, you know, other alternative energies that, that, that come up, you know, you will see that people move because they want to move, right? right? Right now, they're doing it, you know, the, the economics aren't there yet, and they won't move on the economics until such time as that really is there. Um, so, you know, in terms of Canada, the natural resources and the, the reliance on that, I, I don't think there's a huge, I mean, you, you are seeing it right now, and obviously in Alberta and the prairies where they're feeling mm-hmm. that they're on the outside looking in on a, on a global movement away from uh, fossil fuels that's being led by, by certain governments and that push, and they'd like to see it slow down. Um, I think it's just where, where, where we really argue what is the, the pace of change, mm-hmm. right? Is it, is, it, is it 20 years or is it 50 years, right? Um, and um, I think it's normal that you're going to have a group that pushes for shorter uh, and a group that pushes longer, and I think we'll probably come somewhere in the middle um, and, and be just fine from that perspective. So what happens to the arts in all of this? That's an excellent question. Um, yeah, that, I, would be, I would be concerned that as government, government budgets get tighter and tighter, that that support disappears. Um, right. It just seems to be, you know, as you start to work through it, and, and you know, um, it, it, governments are going to be pressured. You know, raising taxes is going to be difficult. They're going to have to raise taxes just to pay back, pay down the deficit, unless we ignore the de- debt and continue to live with it. Right. Which doesn't seem to be the mindset. Yeah, that is one option that we just say, we have debt and we will carry it forever. Um, but presumably at some point we start to pay it down. We start to work back on deficits. Um, if cuts have to happen, they won't be on the income support side of things um, at the very basic. We'll lose some of the, the COVID income support, obviously. Um, they won't be on economic development. They won't be on environmental and some of the transition. Um, so you could see the arts um, a much more, much more difficult, uh, much more challenging time for, for the arts sector in Canada. Yeah, it just seems like it has completely slowed down. And I guess mm-hmm. my question to you, since you guys have a sense of public sentiment and how it's moving and what people are looking for, what are people thinking about a world where potentially there is no theater and there are no concerts and or very limited and everything is being streamed and God knows what else? I, we haven't pro- probed that really deep, deeply yet, hmm. in part because I don't think people are there yet. I, I think there's still, 
there's still, a, and we're seeing this in the debates around school right now, um, uh, discussion returning to a facsimile, of, a reasonable facsimile of normal, right? That it's not, we're not debating a massive change to the school system. We're trying to get back to what was with modifications to be safe. Um, and so, you know, that's, there's some big things we have to tackle before we worry about going to concerts, before we worry about um, going to the theater. And, and so I, I think we will, we'll, we'll get to those other ones as we go. We're going through a sort of a, a hierarchy of needs per, uh, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get there and we'll have that discussion and we'll see it. And, and I, there may be alternatives. There may be new ways to do it. I know, you know, I, you know you're not going to go seeing an underwater wreck is not the same as diving on one. Um, right. So those experiential things. And it's interesting because we had moved into this space where things were, that were experiential, that, you know, were, were really sought after, right. These, uh, you know, I don't necessarily need things, but I want to do something that others haven't done, whether that's travel, et cetera. Um, I think most people are hoping it will come back and I think, you know, it might be five years, might be six years, but I think most people too are thinking it'll come back in some way, shape or form and I'll, I'll find a way to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're quite willing to put it on hold for, you know, that, that length of time. They're quite willing to park their travel budgets and uh, buy something for their backyard and do something else until such time. The question, and as you noted earlier, was habits form. And right. if we stop going to festivals uh, for four years, or will it feel very strange? Or will they go, will they start small and ramp up, right? Will the first festival, you know, the, the you know, the, the blues festival that you traditionally went to the had a venue of 20,000, will the first year it be 4,000? Right. Um, and we'll have to go through that rebuilding process of public confidence. The other thing is um, we've looked at how to, we've done some big resigns work and how to re-engage people. And, you, you know, there are some things that, you know, the grocery stores have done very well. You look at that, the model that they've done. They, they have shown us how they have changed. Lineups outside, spacing. We're going to have someone at the door. We're going to give you a cart. We're going to give you a cart because we don't want you to be carrying things. And because we want to number, know the number of people that go in. So we only have 50 carts, only 50 people in at a good time. Um, so we've accepted um, change or we've looked for change in order to make us feel comfortable in this new era. Yet at the same time, they've kept the basic shopping experience very similar to what it was. So we don't want it to be so hard and difficult to do that. We won't, we won't, we won't make that shift. Right. So, so we've adopted, and we see a lot of confidence in, in the way the grocery stores have done it, part of necessity, part of the basic experience. Um, so as we start to open up and people start to experience it, you know, the first time there's a, a, a festival and no one gets COVID, people are going to go, oh, I can go to the next one, right? That, um, you know, there'll always be people who are willing to try it the first time. So how do you uh, uh, incentivize them to... Uh, to, to do so, it, it may be a lower cost. It may be, uh, uh, I saw a concert in the UK. I can't remember where it was, but it was, you know, everybody was, everybody had a, everybody had a triangle fence and they sat behind the triangle fence and all the triangle fences were, ta- so it was all table seating, all, all two meters apart. And the venue probably held 10% of what it held before. Right. Um, but, but it was a very civilized way to see a show. <laughs> sure. Well, sure it was, but the price yeah. is driven up. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where you could see some real discrepancies, right? Those who are, as I mentioned before, those who are doing well during the COVID period, going, sure, I'm going to go see my uh, favorite band um, at a venue of 2,500 people spread leisurely over the course of a a festival grounds. Um, And I'm sorry for the other 18,500 people who couldn't fit in. 
But of course, that that now adds to the problem of the potential economic polarization you were talking about earlier, where and social cohesion. You know, yes, exactly. Because yeah, you're going to walk by. Should not just be for the rich. Absolutely. So you're going to walk by and see Mike sitting there and sipping a cocktail and watching the show, and you're going to be on the other side of the fence. Right. Uh, and and you and no, create some anxiety and some feeling that I was left behind. Yeah. Potentially. Potentially. I mean, the other alternatives. I mean, you know, you know. Uh, we have a vaccine in early in in December. We um, our our efforts to limit the spread work, um, and you know by this time next year, um, we largely feel we have it under control and the economy's returned. And we haven't had you know we've had eighteen months, but we haven't had that two three years of change, right? And and suddenly everybody's going there's some pent up demand potentially, right? We just don't know that far out yet how it's going to do. So we're, we're doing some future scenario planning where we're looking at sort of three or four very different futures of the world. Um, and we'll evolve them as we go, as we see indicators that push us in one way or the other. And, and, and I think that's what most corporations are probably doing is saying there are a number of scenarios that we number of paths we go down. What are the common elements, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the common elements we talked about, there's going to be an environmental movement. Um, there's going to be increased mobility and work from home. Um, there's going to be some trade issues. There's no no doubt about that, but it's some supply chain disruption. As we neared the end of our time together, I asked Mike a question that is on everybody's mind these days. What does he think a Canadian recovery could look like? My best guess is um, our desire for growth um, at the personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, the people want to grow. They want they want to grow their, their wealth. They want to grow their, their lives. They want their children to have a better life than they do. They, they, they aspire for more. Um, and then you move up the ladder to businesses that want to do the same thing. Um, leads us on a slow return back to where we were, but less prepared for the next wave in some ways. So we double down. We're going to put more money into health and health improvements, but not enough, likely. <laughs> right, because the longer we get away from COVID, the the less the further out the next pandemic will look. Right, um, so we probably don't we do something on health and systems to improve it, but probably not enough. We do something on the environment, but probably not enough because we have debt to pay down and we have economic growth and we have our lives to get back to, and we get back in 2025, 2026 to roughly where we were in 2018, 2019 in terms of how we feel about ourselves and our, you know, so we, it, we, we're a long haul back with slight improvements on some key areas. Um, I don't personally see a euphoric change to, um, you know, there's a lot of people talking about this is going to be a, a once in a lifetime opportunity to change the world. I, I just don't see that. Um, I, and I hopefully I'm wrong. Um, but I also don't see the total despair of protectionism and a return to, you know, um, borders around small communities and like, I don't mean physically, but you know, we don't like people who aren't from here. Um, that we don't, I don't see those pools. I I think we're, we're, you know, and and we're moderate as individuals. That's interesting. So not the extreme good, but not the extreme bad. And if you say that by 25, 26, we'll be back. We were in 2018, but not having made the full investment we probably should have made because we're paying back debt, et cetera. Are you also kind of predicting that we will be exactly where we were pre-COVID and if another pandemic pops up, we are equally unprepared, I guess? Probably. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I don't I mean, want to call you pessimistic. Matters. I'm calling you totally realistic on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I would hope not. Um, you know, for my my children's sake. Um, but you know, if you look at let's use infrastructure as an example, we've known for a long time that the infrastructure in Canada is crumbling, the bridges, and and we are making investments, but we are nowhere near you know the buildings that were built uh, uh, around the centennial that had a 30-year lifespan. Right. Uh, or 40 year lifespan, ISA buildings, bridges at Button and Zero, are, are all still being patched back together because we haven't said, wow, till it falls. Um, it's, you know, I can still go over that bridge. Um, and so I don't know why health systems would be any different. I don't know why um, climate change would be any different, right? I mean, the urgent always pushes out the important. Um, it's, it's interesting because the whole notion of climate change is if it falls, to use the bridge analogy, we are all in considerable danger. So, you know, mm-hmm. like a, a bridge could crumble and we could stop driving over it and fix it. But some of the larger issues we've dealt with in this conversation, social cohesion, climate change, just regular sentiment, economy, these are not things that we can allow to crumble and then just try to patch it together until it finally breaks down. The breakdown is catastrophic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, it, it... And maybe there'll be such a collective action amongst leaders that the public will, will follow along, but it hasn't happened yet. That we haven't seen, um, even on climate change. I mean, you can, you know, everybody seems aligned to it. Right. Um, but not to the point where, you know, you know, we're, we're changing everybody's lot where everybody lies. I guess my last question to you is around Canada's response so far. Is there something or a few things that you can point at and say, Canada has really learned these lessons and therefore can really offer maybe a gift to the rest of the world. Uh, you know what? Uh, civility in, in politics. I know it's, it's waned of late, but the initial discussions, um, the initial when, when things started to go south, um, whether, whether they were federal, provincial, regional, no matter what their political stripe was, uh, they put the interests of their citizens first. Yes. Uh, they were open. They were transparent. They worked together. Uh, they complemented each other when others helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, they coordinated. Um, and, and I think what they showed was a real value that the public sector can bring, um, which had been wanting for many Canadians, right? So that efficacy and the view that government can tackle big things had really fallen off. And, and I think what COVID has shown so far is we can tackle big things when we can work together. Now it's cost us a lot and we put other things on hold. Um, but maybe those things on hold aren't as important as the things that we have, we had to deal with. So maybe we'll see a, a writing of the ship of governments. Um, and I don't mean this from a political standpoint. I mean, from uh, they'll focus on the issues that matter to Canadians. They'll focus on the, uh, the those infrastructure issues, the health issues, the environmental issues. Um, they'll find ways to, to get those things done. Well, Mike, this has been a fascinating conversation. I I really want to thank you for sharing all these insights with us. This has been very enlightening to hear from straight across the country all the things that you're seeing. Maybe I can connect with you again in a few months and we can try this again in in a starting to be post-COVID world and see if things are shifting. (laughs) I hope that happens in a few months, JP. That was the warm, insightful, and always passionate Mike College. Join me next time for a very special episode of Corporate Wayfinding, where we talk to none other than Santa Claus himself. After a crazy year of COVID disruptions, Santa called me 
and wanted to deliver a message to the grown-ups in the professional world, to remind them about hope and faith and beauty in the world as we look into 2021. Don't miss that very special episode, and I look forward to talking to you then. Should you want to talk to me anytime before, please contact me through my website at drjpgideon.com. That's D-R-J-P-G-E-D-E-O-N.com. Until next time, you well. Join us again next time for Corporate Wayfinding, Conversations in Transformation with Dr. J.P. Gideon.